The, uh, the political race is really heated up, if you keep up with that kind of thing. Uh, if you are a political race, is really starting to heat up. Um, some, some of you, you've been keeping up and you've been watching in the news. The Democrats have uh, been going from state to state, and, and each one of those candidates, they're trying to say the right things, to do the right things, so that their party will nominate them at the you know, in November. Um, the Republicans really don't have a whole lot of, of uh, opposition, but the president is going around, and he is going to these various states. He's hosting rallies, and, and they're all doing the same thing. They're raising millions of dollars in order to get their message out and really to promote themselves, right? They're promoting themselves, and, and, they're, and very rarely, I don't, I, don't, well, I don't know if I've ever really seen anyone come straight out and say, okay, here's all my weaknesses, but, you know, you just don't hear that. You don't hear presidential uh, candidates of any side that comes out and said, let me tell you how I failed in the, in the realm of politics. Now, the opponents will tell you <laughs> what they did. They'll put it in the commercials and they'll bring it out in the debates and everything else. But, but usually it's all about if you want to be a leader in our world and its, its philosophy of the world, then you realize that you... You tell about all of your strengths, and you try to minimize your failures. The Gospels are unique, though, because the Gospels are these eyewitness accounts. Here we are in the Gospel of Mark, and, and it, is, it is written based upon the memories of, of the Apostle Peter, who was one of the great leaders and even the spokesman for the group. He was in the inner circle of Jesus. And he, along with the other writers, they were leaders in the church following Jesus' ascension. All of the leaders, uh, they're going to go out and they're going to help establish churches and they're going to, to tell these narratives of these eyewitness accounts in their lives over and over again. And it's really amazing because when you read the Gospels that has their name in it, they come across as bumbling idiots. They really do. And we know there's, there's going to be a major transition that's going to happen. But is it not amazing that all of these things, and, and here we have come, and really it started last week when we talked about, um, when we talked about uh, the Passover meal, and, and during that particular meal, Jesus predicts the betrayal of Judas, and we see this chiastic form that happens. And really all of this is trying to tell us is that they're all failures. Peter, Judas, all of them. They all fell Jesus in his greatest and darkest hour. The point of the structure is to show that they all are going to abandon Jesus. I think. Oh, there it is. Uh, is the abandonment of Christ. And I think this is the, uh, one of the most difficult moments that we find. So let's go ahead and get into the lesson. Let's start looking in verse 26. It's kind of where we started last week, or ended last week. And they finished the meal, or as they finished the meal, they sing a hymn, and they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised, I will go before you to Galilee. Let's stop here. 
When we talk about failure of the disciples, we usually the first thought is Peter. I mean, uh, Judas. Judas betrays Jesus. And we say, well, if there's a number two guy, we always think of Peter. But notice what he says in the text. He says, you will all fail me. All of you. Who does Jesus say is going to fall away? He says, all of you. You're all going to stumble. Now, granted, this is different than Judas. Judas had a premeditated intent. What we find here and, and how this is seen is this is a lapse. This is a time of weakness and a great time of difficulty. And, and, and so there is a sin of weakness and there is a sin of intent. And that's what we find here is this, this sin of weakness. And I think as Christians, a lot of times we fail to really acknowledge the fact that there is a real battle that is happening in our lives uh, between the flesh and the spirit. And, and the spiritual part of us says, I love God and I want to serve God. The, the physical, the, the fleshly part of us, rather, what it says is, I really like to do those things too. And, and I'm being pressured in, in both sides. And we need help. We need help. There is no plan to sin, but weak people give in to temptation, which is different than someone who knows to do God's will, but they just don't care. We're better able to understand our weaknesses when we think about things that just happen to us, like, quickly. You know, we don't have a lot of time to think. And usually those are the times that our character really comes out. Um, you ever driven in Vero Beach? Oh, yeah. Uh, probably some of you got cut off on the way here, people pulling out in front of you, people just moving over on you, and it's in those moments that we find out something about our character. And we find out, you know, we may say some things that we had not intended to say that day. We may become, you know, we've got the Daytona 500 started off today, and we're riding and drafting that person's bumper, or, or we're going to come up beside, I love this one, we come up beside them, we want to get as close as we can so that we can yell at them with our window up and their window up, and we're yelling at them and what they've done wrong and what we feel about them. But those are, those are reactions that happen. And, and it could be just, you know, you're with people, and someone says something that's offensive, and it doesn't mean you can't stand up for what's right, but you also know there's that time where you say, you know what, I crossed the line. I crossed the line. I took this thing too far. That's a weakness. That's a weakness that we find. There are only, um, these are only just a couple of examples, but here is what I'm going to let you know, because some of you are sitting there like, man, he just described me. But here's the thing, we're all weak at times. We all have things that we're not proud of the times that we should have been stronger we love God but you know what we failed and we failed Jesus but we're just like the presidential candidates and we just would rather you not know all that stuff we'd rather you know all the good stuff about us but there's a reason that the Bible tells us in Galatians 6 and verse 1 he says brothers if anyone is called in any transgression you who are spiritual, restore him to a spirit of gentleness. First of all, we see that people are going to fall, and there's a responsibility we have. But then notice what he says. Keep watch on yourselves, lest you too be tempted. As Christians, 
we can be the least gentle on people who fail. Because we think we don't fall. Or we fail to realize our own failures and failing to realize that we can fall and that we're weak is a failure of itself. You realize that, right? So as soon as Jesus tells them that they're going to fall away, he actually quotes to them scripture. Did you notice that? He says, as it is written. And if you look at that text, he tells us in Zechariah chapter 1. Um, so what he is writing there comes from Zechariah chapter 13 and verse 7. It comes from this part of the text where he says, strike the shepherd, the Lord of hosts will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. God's shepherd is going to be struck. His people are going to be tested. There's going to be difficulty. The outcome, though, is not going to be a total disaster because the next couple of verses tell us this. Go ahead, turn it for me. There we go. In the whole land, declares the Lord, two-thirds should be cut off and one-third should be left alive. Now, I told in class today, I said, don't sit here and get a calculator out. Okay, how many Jews are on earth at that time? What's one-third? That's not, that's not the, the intent is there's a remnant. There's a remnant. And he said they will be put into the fire in order to be refined. To be tested but they're the people who are going to call upon the name of the Lord and and Yahweh's going to say these are my people and they're going to say this is my God they will be a regathering this is what he's saying there's going to be a regathering and a refinement of a remnant of those who will be faithful the shepherd king will eventually pour out his spirit upon them in fact go to the next slide here he tells us that the Spirit of God is going to be poured out on them and they will repent and they will grieve over the fact that they have rejected and rebelled against the Messianic shepherd. Notice Jesus' message of hope to the scattered sheep in verse 28. He says, after his resurrection, he says that they will be gathered. They will be gathered as sheep in Galilee. We often think of Jesus' resurrection as the power over death, and it is. But folks, it's also, it has, it has power over our failures. That because of the resurrection, that we can start anew. There's this regathering. Okay, let's keep going. Uh, verse 29, he says, Peter said to them, even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the, th the same thing. You know, we can be tempted to think that, you know what, Peter... Peter's doing an admirable thing. Lord, no, no, no. Not, I'm not going to deny you. I, I'm going to die with you. you. You look at what he says, though, and what he says is he believes he's the exception to the rule. I want you to see what he's saying here. What he's saying is very arrogant. He believes that he is going to prove himself more trustworthy than all the other disciples, because he is implying that they can, and they probably will, all fail. But I am the one, the only one, that is not going to fail. And we're pretty bold ourselves, aren't we? Before trials and difficulties come in our lives. We hear the failures of others, 
and we look down upon them. And we think, well, I would never allow myself uh, for that kind of thing to happen in my life. And we just, you know, we can just really go after it. And, and what I find is that usually that is the famous last words of, of individuals. Because they either fall in the same manner or they will fall in a different manner. But it's all put in the same category of the flesh or of some type of addiction or some type of something else in their lives. But somehow we believe that we are immune to temptation. We believe we have a greater power in ourselves that I have a will within me. And that's the problem. And that was the problem with Peter because he thought that the power was himself. We have good intentions, but folks, we cannot compete with the evil that is among us. Our enemy is ruthless. Listen to this passage in 1 Peter. Your adversary, he says, the devil, he prowls around, listen to it, like a roaring lion, seeking someone to just rip to shreds. Who's writing that? Peter. Peter, did he know something about it? Well, he did. He didn't think it at this particular point. But in Luke's account of this same part of our text, this is, this is what Jesus said to Peter. He said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he may sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you, that your faith may not fail. What was the problem with Peter? Jesus had prayed, but Peter was trusting in his own abilities. And that's why I believe he says, right before he says this about the roaring lion, he says this, he says, to humble yourselves. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him. Not upon your strength but upon him, because he cares for you. And he says that's why you're to be sober-minded and why you are to be watchful. You see that. What was the problem in the text? They were not humble. In fact, Luke's version, just to refer to it, I try not to do it very often, but what happens leading up to this is they're disputing over who is the greatest. Jesus tells Peter, you will disavow me three times tonight. Rather than trusting in the power of God and being watchful, he believed and they believed they were the greatest. And if you think that, that you know, you're strong enough to take on evil of yourself or you believe that you've got this power all within you to do it you don't you haven't read your Bible because in the book of Ephesians it tells us be strong in the Lord in the strength of his might and we put on the armor of God that we may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil and notice what we're fighting against is not flesh and blood 
He says it's rulers and authorities and cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. We pick on Peter, but he's not the only one saying he, would, he wouldn't scatter. He's not the only one saying, no, Lord, I'll never deny you. In fact, I will die with you. They all did. And my question is, why do we feel like we are spiritually stronger sometimes than everyone else? Why do we think sometimes that it's almost like a competition? What if one of the disciples had said, Lord, I'm weak. I, I really need you to pray for me. I really need you. I, I just don't know if I can endure what may be coming down the line. Do you think Jesus would have said, you know what? You're out of the 12. Sorry, I'm just taking the strongest people. Do we think Christians would be given a harsher judgment because we admit we're weak? Sometimes I think that's our attitude. And it doesn't come from Scripture. It comes from a worldly philosophy which says only the strong survive. And to never let anyone see your weaknesses. Watch the presidential debates. On all sides, tell me I'm wrong. Placing the Passover meal, in fact, go ahead and place up here, the Passover meal between these betrayals, Jesus is showing us who is around the table. Mark vividly conveys to us, next slide, who it is that Jesus is pouring out for the many. It's, it's for those very ones who sit at the table. The main evil in the world and the crucial atonement is at that table. And they are at the table every single time when we celebrate communion together. In this respect, the Last Supper is, in Paul's words, a remembrance. In fact, those of you who are going to be passing the trays, you can go ahead and go on out now. I'm going to say a few more things before we get to the Lord's Supper. Communion points to the future, doesn't it? In fact, if you look back in verse 25, he says, Until that day I drink it new with you in the kingdom of God. Despite their betrayal, despite their cowardice of the disciples, the Lord's Supper is the expectation of the coming kingdom of God. And those who partake of the bread and they drink of the cup every week, we are nothing more than grateful sinners who stand in between the times. Over the years, Christianity, Christians have taken 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 27, way out of context. We've talked about, you know, partaking in an unworthy manner. And somehow it's come to believe that anyone who comes and takes the Lord's Supper, if you've, you know, you've got something, you know, you've done in your life or something over this last week, you know, and, and you've absolutely shamed God, then you know what? You're unworthy. Paul tells us who's worthy. Paul tells us who's unworthy. And one is those who are not examining themselves and what that means is that we don't come to the table worthy 
It's a time that we come and, and we look deep into our hearts to reveal the hidden purposes of the hearts that lay there. And then we take those things and we lay them before the body that has been broken and the blood that has been poured out for our sins. We are only worthy of the Lord's Supper when we realize that we're unworthy. We feel its power when we recognize Jesus died for us and he accepts us the fact, despite the fact that we are failures. If you come to the table and you've come this morning and you're, you're going to judge other people and who you think should or shouldn't be taking the Lord's Supper, let me tell you, you just took it unworthily. If you take the elements thinking that you are the spiritually the strongest person in this room, that you are the greatest, you partook of it unworthily. If you come thinking that even if everyone else fails Jesus, you are the one person in this room that would not fail Jesus, you have partaken unworthily. Those who come in humility and they lay their failures before the cross are the ones who are worthy. The table is a story of redemption. The second way we partake, and it's here, uh, in an unworthy manner, is if we don't discern the body. The Lord's Supper became a point of disunity for the Corinthians. They no longer saw it as a communal it was not something they waited for one another. In fact, once the meal was removed from communion, which happened officially at the Council of Carthage in 397 AD, it steadily became a moment for individuals. That doesn't look like what happened around the table last week. It's not what you would have found in the first and second centuries to share the elements in an evening meal, which also became known as an agape meal, or love feast. The joyful, down-to-earth atmosphere of the meal in someone's living room was replaced with a solemn ritual. The Corinthians were, were partaking unworthily because they no longer saw this event as a community event. The Corinthians partook on their own behalf. Jesus took bread on others' behalf. The Corinthians acted selfishly. Jesus gave his whole self. The Corinthians stood condemned because they showed no concern for other people's hunger or honor. And they may have revered the body at the table, but they were no longer revering the body around the table. Dear Father, we come before you for the cup and we give you thanks. You are our Lord, our God, and you have given us the great Lamb who has poured out his blood for the many. And Father, we bring this time of remembrance of your death and also knowing that we are on the other side of the resurrection and that we give such great joy and thankfulness for this moment. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.